Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. All right, guys, welcome everybody to the Thin Green Line podcast this morning. We are super excited to have Bill Bodner, special agent in charge of the Drug Enforcement Administration out of the Los Angeles greater area and other areas we're going to talk about with Bill in a minute. Uh, Bill's been with the DEA for 29 years, and we have a great show today going into what his role is at the federal level as he's integrated with us on the state level and all the things we do related to the Thin Green Line and environmental crime as uh, drug violations coincide with that. So, Bill, great to have you on the show, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. I appreciate the uh, invitation to come on. I feel like I'm talking to two long-lost brothers here. With, uh, with Wayne being up in New Hampshire, I spent some time up there at Lake Winnipesaukee and Waterville Valley when I was young. And, uh, and with you being out in Southern California, I mean, that's where I was pretty much day one and back in 92, just like you. So we've seen a lot of the same things. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, it's, been, it's a really small world. When, when I learned of you through other mutual friends, I had worked with so many of your colleagues when I was up there in the Silicon Valley, uh, working with that you know, San Jose office of the DEA and integrating on everything from tactical training to uh, cannabis, meth, meth problems, all related to environmental crime before it was even really an awareness, man. So, and now, you know, for, for our viewers and listeners, an incredibly small world because two members of our marijuana enforcement team, California Department of Fish and Wildlife's Tactical Unit, is down working hand in hand with you guys in the L.A. Basin, uh, yep. especially on, you know, the toxically tainted uh, DTO cannabis production. And you guys are immersed in that. And people just don't think that DEA would be focused on an environmental component as well or have a concern for an environmental component with drug cases like game wardens do, but you guys are actively involved in that. Your, uh, your U S attorneys are, are going after those, those violations to get really strict penalties and convictions, especially of the, uh, you know, the upper level players. Um, 
talk about your history, man. How'd you start with DEA? What got you, you know, into that mindset to start this amazing yeah. career as we dive probably, into Probably much like, much like uh, the two of you and everybody that's kind of in this line of work. It was, uh, you know, I graduated college. I did some job interviews and I just had the realization that um, I didn't see myself working in an office. You know, I wasn't going to be a nine to five guy working in an office every day. I just felt like there had to be something more, but whatever that something was, it had to have a positive impact. There had to be that component of it where I felt like I was doing something to contribute to uh, just a better society. And, and, you know, maybe that sounds a little um, overly altruistic or something, but, but that's, that's really what it was all about for me, doing something that was going to be exciting, where I wasn't tied to a desk. Uh, hey, when, when I was a kid, I played, you know, army, I played <laughs> spying games, I, we played, and it turns out that that's what we ended up doing for careers. I mean, what's better than that? I remember, uh, and I tell young agents this when they get hired now, and they come in and I meet them, and I don't know, maybe they think I'm full of crap, but I tell them a story about when I was about three or four years on the job working in LA, and there was a coworker who was traveling to Hawaii to go on vacation. And that puzzled me. It baffled me. I'm like, I don't understand why this guy is going to take a vacation to go to Hawaii. What could be more fun than what we're doing here on the job every day? Like if I went to, if I had to go to Hawaii now to live, to go on the beach, I'd be pissed. Like, what would I be missing? And you know, I, I, I guess that, uh, I guess that just meant that I was in the right line of work, but that was the honest truth. Like I, I would be mad if my team didn't call me to work on something, you know, maybe I was, you know, it could have been, you know, a wife's birthday. It could have been whatever it was. I would still be mad at them if they didn't call me and at least, you know, ask me, Hey, this is what we're doing. Can you come out with us right now? Yeah. No, I, I, I totally understand bill. Cause it yeah, still feels it, good. It's crazy. How addicting and how <laughs> still feels good when the guys call you and share when you're retired, you know, just, just those inside things or call you for advice. Uh, no, I, yep. I think we've both been there, and I, I think that's what we miss the most is being a part of the game, being a part of the investigation, being part of sitting on the sidelines. It's it's a tough thing to do, even as a supervisor, although I think being a lieutenant, oh. I, I got into more stuff because every guy had a good case. Guess where I'd go? I'd go where the good case was. Yeah. I, would, I wouldn't sit there. I'm the supervisor. Yep. I could yeah. do whatever I want. Guess what? We're, doing a, we're going up north. We're going to work hard. We're going to go down here. That guy's got something going. I'm going to nose right in. And I think as a lieutenant, I had more action as a single officer because everybody that had a hot case, I, I was there. I was part of it. Right. Right. <laughs> it's great. You know, it is. Hey, the irony's not lost on me. When I look at the seat I'm sitting in now, and I'm kind of doing a lot of things that when I was 25 years old, I would say, I don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> right. But, but you try to at least uh, take your experiences with you and make sure that the young people coming in have that same philosophy of the job that you had. Like, it has to be fun. What's going to make mm -hmm. you productive is when you're having fun at work. And when you're productive, you're going to have even more fun. And it just kind of picks up momentum. Um, you, man, you guys hit the nail on the head. It, to me, it was like playing a team sport. Mm, That's right. what it was. You know, you, you had your team of guys, whether you were the brand new guy or whether you were the supervisor of the team, you had your team of guys and girls and you were out there working on the streets or in the woods or wherever it was. And just the, the camaraderie that you were able to share 
that's something that does trouble me knowing that in a couple of years that gets turned off, you know, and I'm going to have to find another, yeah. uh, another, another place in life constructively to get that. Yeah. You know, one of the things, Bill, you just hit it on the head is having the passion for the job and letting your guys see that, you know, I mean, you were an agent for so many years, you know, Wayne and I were both in the field. He became a lieutenant yep. of a patrol squad. And I know when, when we formed up the Met team, the, the special ops unit in California, it was, well, you know how it is when you're forming a team or working real hard in an intense case, you're just, you're all in. It's a 24-7 thing, you know, and be having my guys' backs, making sure they were represented well, and like you do with your guys, um, doing it from a field perspective. Um, and, you know, as we promote up the chain and you're at the SAC position, you know, and mm. I've known a lot of other SACs, and we've had guys on, you know, that were operators on my MET team when we formed it up that are now captains and chiefs. And, you know, they're not in the glory jobs. They're taking, you know, they're putting out fires every day, you know, they're dealing with political heat, but they're like, hey, I came from the field. I'm going to back you guys up. I know the risks you're taking. I know the politics of California can get kind of weird, you know, with, uh, I'm sure you're fully aware of that, but that that's the fun of it is we live vicariously through those guys by having their backs and uh, yep. you're doing that, man. And it's so cool to see and your energy. And I still see it in pictures and hearing stories. You're still going out on basically and, you know, oversee some operations and, and doing that oversight. And it's, uh, it's super cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's still fun. Like I said, that's the bottom line. It's still fun. And, and who wants to leave a job when you're having fun at it? Yeah. And Bill, for our listeners, can you tell them what a SAC was? I teach. So uh, Bill, you're, 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 yeah. So, so, so SAC means special agent in charge. It's more or less, a, more or less a, a chief of a region. And the main office we have in this region is Los Angeles, but we actually have 14 offices and that includes the, Two offices in the state of Nevada, uh, two in Hawaii, one in Honolulu and one in Maui. And then we have an office in Guam and Saipan. And then the rest of our offices are just concentrated in the seven county greater L.A. area. And basically what I what I find myself doing now as the SAC is kind of looking at the threats to the community, uh, defining what our strategy is going to be, how we're going to allocate resources to get the best bang for our buck in protecting the public and then uh, doing a lot of things like today, like doing the messaging about what's out there, what's dangerous to the public, um, what we've what we've accomplished as an agency. And, you know, that's some that's an area where in the past we probably haven't done the best job because, as we just talked about, we love being out in the field. We love doing the work. You know, in our minds, the work sells itself. But the reality is probably the public doesn't necessarily have an understanding of what you guys did. They don't necessarily have an understanding of what, uh, of what DEA agents do and the value that we all bring to public safety and, uh, you know, to keeping people safe and protecting our, our land. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and your guys game has really changed quite a bit, hasn't it? When you, when you look at the last five years and you come into the SAC position last year, but having all that field time in LA, and, you know, you're dealing with drug trafficking organizations just like we are on the MET team. And you guys are seen it on a more global scale in the federal level. Um, everything from, you know, EPA banned poisons on toxically tainted weed, which we've discussed on this show and obviously with my background. And um, we've gotten into that with other guests. But you come from a really good perspective from trends you guys are seeing on the federal level as you integrate with state groups like ours in California, because that is that cannabis hub. Right. So. Talk to us a little bit about that aspect of, of what you guys are doing. And obviously we have the, the white dope issues as well, but how impactful is this stuff from what you're seeing? Yeah. And, and what are the, what are the trends? 
the toxically tainted weed is something that really alarms me right now. And uh, I give you guys a ton of credit for kind of being out there in front and putting that on the map. Um, so he, he, here's a couple, here's a couple things, examples I can give you of the dangers this poses and why people on both sides of the marijuana issue really need to come together and, and take a stance on this black market marijuana. Um, first off, the, the state of California, the BCC, Bureau of Cannabis Control, they estimated last year that 80% of the marijuana market in California was black market. Mm. So with that black right. market weed, yeah, we don't know what's being used uh, to grow that stuff. And it, here's an example, like Forbes magazine in early August, they, they published a, uh, a study that said pregnant women who use marijuana are like 1.4 or 1.5 times more likely to give birth to uh, a child with autism. And my thing is, is that from the mm. marijuana or is that from the toxic pesticides that were used on the marijuana that the FDA has already banned because they cause birth defects, you know? So it, it's really giving, uh, it's really giving a false perception where we're not even able to determine what's from the marijuana, what positive or negative side effects are from marijuana and what negative side effects are really from all the toxins that are on these drugs. It, vaping cartridges are another big thing now. So Right. There, there's a uh, there's a company, I think, called Canasafe or, or something like that, an independent company that tests marijuana products. They tested seven black market marijuana vaping cartridges. They all had pesticides in it. They all had pesticides. And some of them, it was like 1500 times the allowable limit. And, you know, people have this perception that vaping is less dangerous than smoking. But really, they're, they're vaping pesticides because right. of what's happened with the, with the black market and these illegal grows in California. So it, it's, a, it's a significant threat uh, to the public. And man, I just don't know. I don't know where it's going to end up. It scares me. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, and this was a, you know, something I was going to ask you a little later in the broadcast, but it's, it's kind of proximate right now is, I know our teams because of the COVID response um, and PPE and safety protocol, you know, for our, our teams to operate federal, state, local sheriff's departments. Um, we've just seen it blow up in California and other states with what the cartels are doing right now, because there's less pressure, obviously, because mm -hmm. there's less officers out there. A lot of our guys are tied up on everything from riot control to medical response to you name it. Um, but then the other thing we're seeing is, and, and uh, let's compare notes here is, a lack of in custody is being able to be booked and taken in on yeah. these DTO suspects that we do catch in rows because of the COVID response, the jail's not taking them. So on the Met front right now, and I'm talking to teammates as recently as a week ago, it's, we're making a lot of, we're, we're capturing a lot of people. We're doing it safely. We're ripping grow after grow every day because there's so little pressure on these guys right now through COVID, but we're, we're letting them go. I mean, the yep. jails aren't even taking them. So we're really concentrating on taking the product out safely looking at the environmental damages and trying to rectify it and just keep that stuff from getting into the market. Like you said, causing a cancer, a respiratory failure, nerve damage, autism, you know, for a pregnant lady, whatever the case may be. Um, what are you guys seeing from that standpoint? The same thing. I mean, with the state now, um, part of it because of COVID and then just part of it because of uh, like AB 109 and, and some, yeah. some, some, th some things like that from the past, it's difficult for a nonviolent drug offender to get any kind of uh, jail time. Right now in California, 
if you get now, now, and I'm talking about like a white drug crime, just to give an example, like, let's say you got caught with 40 or 50 pounds of methamphetamine or fentanyl, or, you know, s- some pretty dangerous synthetic drugs. Yeah. If you pled guilty, you would probably, and did your jail time, you would probably get out sooner than if you went to trial and fought the case and won. And that's just because uh, the state has told the counties, hey, you can't house these nonviolent drug offenders in state prison anymore. We don't have the money to do it. You're going, if, you, uh, if you're going to continue to prosecute these nonviolent drug crimes, they have to be in the county system. And a lot of the county systems, at least here in Southern California, are overcrowded. So they can't, especially now with COVID, as you said, you know, that's magnifying it or amplifying that. So uh, for every person that goes in, someone has to come out. Someone has to right. come out. So, so, so we're not getting jail time. So there's really not a, uh, a disincentive to go right back to growing. And that, that's, the, that's kind of the struggle and the problem right now is finding uh, a way to get these people to comply with the state laws and to not do these illegal grows. Um, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit frustrating. I think, uh, I think the solution probably is gonna be, have to be more, more enforcement. I mean, I think that's gonna have to be what the solution is. The tax structure with the per- permitted marijuana is, is significant. And I think it's kind of uh, provided an incentive for people not to get permitted and, to, and just to go the black market route. Yeah, it, it, it certainly seems to be the case. And um, we're seeing the black market, you know, just thrive in California, like you said, and all these growers that just don't want to put up with the permitted red tape, uh, the, mm-hmm. the numerous inspections from different agencies and what it's going to what it's going to cost them. In addition to being on the radar, you know, and we're, uh, we, we did have a little bit of help federally. And, and I, I, when the new administration came in in 2016, shortly after that, we had uh, Operation Forest Watch. And I remember at the time working in California and our met team was kind of in its heyday. You know, we were about four years in, we were, we were kind of clicking really positive. We, we, we kind of knew the game um, props, you know, um, all the regulation had happened and we were dealing with regulated and unregulated grows um, and kind of diversifying a two prong approach, but we were not getting, you know, any of those convictions and we weren't getting any, uh, you know, like, like stays that already starting before COVID, but federally with uh, us forest service, the AG coming down sessions at the time. And there was four, I think it was $4 million, maybe more dedicated to just public land, national forest, DTO, strictly trespass grows. So we did what we kind of reverse engineered it. What we used to do where uh, federals, you know, federal guys on your side would come in and jump in with us at the local level. Cause we were getting the environmental prosecutions, you know, about yep. 10 years ago. Now we jumped in to go to the AUSAs and do some federal cases because California state just wasn't touching it. And it was, it was really effective for that one particular operation. I remember the arrests we made. It was you know just coming out of that severe drought we had in California, so water impacts. So that was very favorable. And I guess my question to this is, are you guys having a little bit more leeway federally right now if we take your cases federal through you guys help out? Yeah, I think, uh, I think we are. If uh, those environmental charges. Yeah, I think especially in the cases where there's uh, additional environmental charges, we are getting some uh, some additional impact. Here's one thing that I've noticed about uh, this fiscal year, 2020, or last fiscal year, for us just ended yesterday, actually. We've seen a lot, at least in the L.A. area, a lot fewer grows, significantly fewer on public lands. And I think, uh, I think that is a tribute to... Uh, Getting the word out, which you guys do, and also that program that, that you're speaking of, 
um, the the traffickers now know, hey, if you're on public land, the feds are going to come looking for you. And in the federal system, you're still going to go do some jail time if you get caught. Unfortunately, we've seen it. We've seen it kind of shift to private land. And, you know, we work that I I guess there's two real programs where we team up with with uh, you guys. One is the camp program run by the state. Where, right. where we come in, we come in with some uh, resources and maybe some federal prosecutions in, in some areas. And the other we call the DSEP program, uh, yep. Domestic Cannabis Eradication Program. That's more or less us funding, you know, giving grants or providing money to the state and then going out on operations with them uh, to to go after grows. And we're going with the DSEP program. We're doing a lot more private land grows in Southern California now. Hey, they look just like the the public land grows. You know, it's not a pretty sight as far as carbofuron and, and all the other uh, all the other dangerous chemicals that are there. But these growers have kind of decided that, hey, like I said, if we're on public land, we're, it's a lot riskier now than than being in private land. Yeah, we saw that shift a couple of years ago, just just like you're saying. And we saw all these DTO groups, especially once, you know, Prop 64 and all these other regulations were enacted in California. And like you said, that shift of federal money and you guys put an emphasis on those outdoor public land prosecutions. Um, when I was leaving back at the end of 2018, and it's still pretty much the same percentage working with the team, it's, it's about a 50-50 now. I mean, statewide, as you know, our MET team is imb- embedded working with you guys in every county of the state. And 50% of our DTO grows on environmentally sensitive areas or on private land under the auspice of a quasi legal permit permittee trying to get into the game, but he's got DTO operatives working right under everybody's noses, hoping they don't get caught at the state level. And you mentioned DCEP and I'm glad you did. Um, For those of our viewers and and listeners that don't know, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, the DCEP program really has been our lifeblood bill from you guys. And it's, it's a big uh, level of gratitude I want to put out because as we produce more, either in, in custodies, plant count of these tainted weed plants, and then even some environmental damages started to factor into the tabulation of what we would receive from, from the DEA every year. I think our MET team in California this year has seen our largest DCEP grant in history just because of rewarded production. And now we're, we're embedded and working right with you guys as well with that DSEP money. And um, what people don't know is they think we just have this money and an operating budget to go out and do these operations 24 seven, do it all. And as you know, man, no way. Um, no, we're, we're, we're halfway through the summer on a busy year. We're out of money and oh, you yeah. know, we're out of, we're out of helicopter blade time. We're out of overtime. We're out of equipment money, gas money to get the trucks and fuel trucks where they got to go. And if it wasn't for DSEP, um, with what little operating budget we have under the state funding, we couldn't be as effective. And and you guys do that. So the DCEP grant has been amazing. Um, and we're glad to hear it's still going on because there were some rumors and some, you know, words circulating when I was leaving in 2018 that we might lose DCEP. And man, that was heartbreaking. So it, it's DCEP been keeping us going. For? It stands for uh, Domestic Cannabis Eradication Program. Right. And, and it's a, it, it, you know, like John said, it's a funding conduit. You know, mm-hmm. we, we provide funding to state and local agencies to help them with eradication. And then we actually partner with them and go out and do the, uh, the, the eradication operations with them. But, but like you said, I know uh, I was speaking with the sheriff of, a, of one of the counties here in Southern California. I don't want to say which one, but they have a list of, uh, of over 400 locations right now. Yeah. Wow. that's on their list. And I mean, you know, how long is it, you know, that's, 
Can't do that. That's just not going to happen. You know, that's oh, just not right. going to happen. So you, so you try to prioritize, you try to geographically do it so you can have the greatest impact in, in a couple of days in an area and, and do it efficiently. But there's just so many uh, grows right now that, you know, it, it, it's, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be something we can just snap our fingers and, and, and knock it out. And how many grows yeah. are those, do you think, Bill, are just the, the average guy having a grow or are these all commercially legal grows? No, oh, no, no. These are all illegal ones. These are all, this, this is, all commercialized these are all illegal, illegal grows. 400, all wow. commercialized illegal grows. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and how many a group? plants per grow is, is an average? I, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I would say at least a thousand. John, oh, what do you man. think? I mean, <laughs> Right. I'm just thinking of the the, the whole size of this. Yeah. It just it's yeah, it's I, mind I blowing to us that don't yeah. deal with it. I'm just like you and, know, and, uh, it, a good haul in New Hampshire would be 50 plants. Oh, <laughs> right, right. No, these, these Northern are like, New Hampshire. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, c- kind of makeshift green. You know, even even the ones on uh, so so a lot of the ones on private land, like makeshift greenhouses, we see uh, where the, where they'll cut and even ex- excavate the ground out a little bit so it has a lower profile and it's mm. not as obvious to the surroundings. They'll throw up kind of a makeshift greenhouse with some plastic. Yep. Um, th- there's a group, I'm trying to think of the name of it, like e- e- uh, Integral Ecology Research Center or something yep. like that. And they, they, they yeah, yep. there you go. Yeah. So, so they say that 90% of the grows where they test the, uh, the soil and I guess groundwater have, uh, have some kind of carbofurin or some other toxic chemical in it. Now, I, I don't know how many they test, you know, if they're, if they're doing, maybe John knows if they're doing a large sample, but that's scary to me that I'm saying, Hey, there's a thousand grows out there or, or 500 grows that we're not even going to get to. And we know that 90% of the grows have dangerous chemicals in them. You know, it's something that, uh, and then John, to your thing about the, the, the program going away, I mean, this is why it's not going away. This is why yeah. we're still committed to doing it because it's, um, it, it's certainly not helping, helping the environment at all. No, and, and on, on your point, Bill and Wayne, to get to what you just addressed on, you know, how big are these grows? And, and I think you're right, Bill, to what you said, about a thousand is an average and even kind of small. And even on these private land hoop houses that have a little bit of DTO influence and they're, they're using some back country as well next to these hoop houses. Um, Wayne, something to remember is all of this stuff, you know, a good portion of this stuff that does 90% of it's tainted is going back east and being sold in states like New Hampshire that don't have a big yep. weed. Uh, you know, Mediterranean climate, the Eastern seaboard, Chicago, New York, the Midwest. So this stuff is feeding the nation um, on the black market. And IERC has been a great group, Bill, like you mentioned. Um, They've worked hand in hand with us and with U.S. Forest Service on doing, going in right behind us on grow sites. After we raid them, we secure them, we eradicate, and they'll they'll sit there sometimes for several seasons and do follow-up soil samples water sampling. And what they're finding is mind-blowing. I actually have a, one of the chapters that I co-authored with Murad Gabriel uh, and Greta, who are part of IERC, we, we used in Hidmore in my new book, just to show people the science side of what you and yep. I do, Bill, from awesome. just how dangerous this stuff is and how pervasive. I mean, one growth site gets eradicated. And if we don't completely reclimate that stuff and get those poisons out, which sometimes is impossible, we could kill three, four miles of creek for years. Steelhead mm-hmm. trout fishery, other endangered aquatics and everything that's drinking from them and yeah, even drinking water. water. So mm-hmm. it's, it's critical that we stay in this fight and it's, it's absolutely a lifeblood um, with the DCEP funding and that we're working hand in hand. And um, you're right from an outreach standpoint, Bill, getting back to that topic, 
we were the same way until when we formed MET. One of the, about 20, 30% of my job as I was assigned was outreach and education. Mm. Yep. Um, little tiny agency of 400 game wardens, not known what, what the heck are they doing in the drug world of marijuana eradication. They thought that was, you know, the public just thought it was weird. The governor's office thought it was weird in the early days. And then when we brought the environmental component. Other in, game wardens thought it and, was weird. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's what's this crazy what's this crazy california team it's, it's left coast thing. What is going on? So. <laughs> uh, no pun intended but uh, uh but you know and then and then dea starts getting involved in, and working on environmental cases with us man it's, it's just been really really cool but um but but it has to continue and and uh my next question is and we uh, it's kind of a loaded question but bill from the standpoint of regulation Obviously, yeah. with Prop 64 in California, we look at Colorado. I even look at my new home state of Montana that has medicinal growing going on. Uh-huh. Are you see? Is this stuff helping? Is regulation as it's well, structured helping from what you guys you know, are seeing federally? What a great question! Because first, and it goes to what Wayne asked a second ago. All these grows that you and I are talking about, these are all not permitted. These are unpermitted grows in the state of California. So a lot of times people will say, hey, what's DEA doing getting involved in this? This is legal in California. No, these are people that are not following the California rules. That's that's first off. So to talk a little bit about the history and how we ended up with with drug cartel growers up here in California. uh, I remember in 96, the price of Mexican marijuana per pound was about 550 bucks here in California. Now it's probably 10 percent lower than that. Right. So the the price has gone down. So why has the price gone down and why is that significant? If you're a farmer in Sinaloa, Mexico, uh, you're going to grow marijuana because your family's been growing marijuana for 30 or 40 years or 50 years or generations. And the price for the marijuana is set by the drug cartel that controls your region. So the Sinaloa cartel is going to set the price that they're paying that farmer for the marijuana. And it's not necessarily a fair market system. You know, they're going to tell them, hey, this is what we're paying you for it. If you don't like it, uh, there's nowhere else you're going to sell it. And if we find out you try to, we'll kill you. So that's number one. So as as you know, back in 96, when we had Prop 215 in California and we started kind of the, the relaxation of the rules and the legalization process, so to speak, um, what we found was a connoisseur, more of a connoisseur marijuana market developing. Like back at that time, there was high-grade marijuana coming down from Canada. There was uh, indoor grow marijuana in California, and kind of the you know, and of course the, the the Emerald Triangle up in up in the north growing marijuana, all a lot higher quality than what we were seeing from Mexico. And users were like, "Hey, if it's legal, I don't really you know, I'm not as nervous about buying it. I'm going to buy this higher quality stuff." So what we've seen as legalization in California has kind of progressed, we've seen the demand for these Mexican marijuana go down. And what has that resulted in? All the people that have worked on the grows there in in Mexico getting paid less money. And and let's be honest, there's limited economic opportunity. You know, they haven't chosen, they're not growing marijuana there because they're passing up a a six-figure job somewhere else. They're they're growing it to, to, to feed their family. Sure. But what hap- what happens is they can't the cartels aren't making the money in marijuana. They're not paying the growers as much anymore. But there's opportunity in California. If you yeah. can get up to California, we can start a grow up here. Uh, you know, because of legalization, the enforcement is relaxed, which you and I kind of talked about. You're probably not going to go to jail, even if you get caught. 
instead of making a couple bucks a day, let's make a couple hundred bucks a day and go up to California and, and grow. So all these growers that grew cartel marijuana in Mexico have all come up here now. And it's a trade, you know, it's a skilled trade, uh, growing marijuana and, and having that horticulture, uh, capability is a skilled trade up here in California now. And that's kind of what's brought all that, that illegal grow up here. My position, and I saw it with methamphetamine, and you'll remember this from your days out in Riverside. Oh, yeah. If, if you, if you uh, increase regulation, you can push, push the black market out. If you decrease regulation, you kind of invite the black market in. So an example of increasing regulation we saw in uh, 2004 or 2005 with the, the Combat, Combating Methamphetamine Act, mm -hmm. the U.S. really restricted the chemicals needed to make methamphetamine because California used to be the number one state for outdoor illegal meth labs, right? Yep. It was California. Now, there were other states in the Midwest where statistically they might have had more labs, but they were like little stovetop labs where they'd make an ounce, you know, uh, a biker gang would make an ounce of meth a week. You know, I'm talking about the 40 pound cooks that were happening out in Riverside County and Kern County back in the day. Um, by increasing regulation, we were able to really clean that problem up, right? There's not really a meth production lab issue in, in our uh, area anymore. That's all been pushed down to Mexico. But the converse of that is with marijuana, we've gone the opposite direction, right? We've deregulated and we've become more permissive, whether it's right or wrong. That has invited the black market in because there's no consequences to growing now. And right. if, if they can make a lot more money growing here in California than they, than they used to make in Mexico. Yeah. And we're seeing, you know, I noticed this in talking to other game wardens and other officers on the federal level, DEA and different things throughout the rest of the country. And as some of those states have started to regulate as well, um, Midwestern states, now all of a sudden some wildlife refuges game wardens are running into grows on waterways and aqueducts and a little plots of forest and, you know, uh, upland bird habitat, just ridiculous stuff. So it seems like there has been this trend that once regulation starts and once, you know, the pressure is eased up from enforcement because other priorities, white dope, for instance, now all of a sudden a DTO group says, hey, maybe we can branch out and, uh, you know, leave California and to a lesser extent go to a different state. So it, it, it seems to be that trend. And um, unfortunately, it's not getting better as, as things start to move out east um, and, and just looking at um, more regulation needed. And, and some people kind of balk at that when they look at the funding and what you and I and Wayne and, and all of us in law enforcement do for public safety and now environmental crime protection. But it does seem to be, be the solution. And I know California is an example. Over a quarter of all the game wardens in our force now are assigned to cannabis enforcement teams, yeah. either private land permitting teams that you guys work with or the tactical unit that, that, um, that I was part of with the Met. And we're still underwater. We by no means have yep. enough permitting teams to just handle, you know, um, the, the, an, a, an average amount, knowing we're not going to get to all of them. And I know the county you're talking about having a, had a lot of good work in that county with the mm -hmm. 400 cases you're talking about. And that's, that's one example. And many other counties are in that same boat. Um, and now other states are starting to fill the hits. So this is not a problem that's going away, as you know, brother, and something that uh, glad to have your perspective on it as you see this from kind of the 30,000 foot view federally when you look outside of just California and the nation as a whole. Yeah. And, and I feel like with California, I mean, I, and Hey, I know in California, there's a reluctance to 
uh, incarcerate people for nonviolent drug crimes, especially marijuana. I, I understand that that's where the, the, the state is at. Um, I just don't know what other solution there is, that there may be one, but, but the issue is the tax money, the tax revenue that was anticipated is not there. And the reason it's not there is because there's so much black market. So right. how do you how do you get people to, you know, and, and if you don't want to call it enforcement, at least call it compliance. But there has to be a more robust compliance uh, arm or, or the policy is just not going to work. It's just not going to work. Now, the, alternatively, the, the thing that could work in California is mega marijuana, like maybe some big corporations uh, come in and really vertically integrate and take over everything. And they're able to, to, uh, use capitalism, I guess, so to speak. And, right. And knock and knock these illegal growers out of business by, by being more efficient, you know, by having one business that's more efficient than the, than the three or 400 small mom and pops trying to make it out there now, because yeah, bring their costs. Like down. I said, with the, ta- yeah, bring the cost down. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Because I mean, here's here's the thing. So so you could be paying uh, about 70 70 percent in taxes by the time you're done, or you can go black market and pay zero percent in taxes. I mean, which is more enticing to someone who's already probably been on the black market side at one point or another in their life? You have a 15 percent state excise tax. Uh, Sometimes, you know, a municipality will tack on another five or 10 percent to that 11 percent sales tax here in L.A. County. Then, you know, and this is aside from the legal fees and permitting fees, right? Then on the money that you make, if you have a, some kind of pass-through corporation, an S-corp or something, you're going to have to pay income tax. So you're going to pay right. 10% state income tax and what, 20, you know, uh, generously 20, 22% federal income tax. So that's another 30%. So you're up to 60 or 70% mm. of your money going to taxes and you're looking, you know, across the street or in the next county over where someone's doing it illegally and they're not going to jail and you haven't seen any enforcement there. And you're like, why, you know, why, why am I uh, giving away 70% of my money by following the rules when the guy next to me is not that that's, that's, you know, in a nutshell, I think that's, that's the issue. Yeah. And there's, there's been, uh, you know, some big, big corporate groups that are trying to come into California to start that model, you know, and model it after the wine industry or the tobacco industry, regulate it, keep it pure, keep it tested, uh, you know, make it available and try to break that black market. And obviously it's just an uphill battle right now because it's, it's so new, but, um, but yeah, that's it, you know, Bill, we, and Wayne, I think you and I talked about this um, going back about a year ago, but I remember when prop 64 started and we had, we did an outreach and education push, you know, from the state level. I remember going to a, you know, a California Grower Association hosted grower meetings. And that was an eye opener being a, a one cop in 500 growers looking at me sideways, right? Mm. You can imagine that <laughs> after we've been working, you know, those groups for so long. And um, I remember in Humboldt County, Humboldt County, of course, up in that Emerald Triangle, 10,000 growers were kind of online after compliance education, non-enforcement, mm-hmm. keep, keep, keep a positive mm-hmm. relationship to regulate and register. And then when they started to look at the taxes and the oversight and the inspection, everybody got kind of freaked out. And I think we had less than a thousand that actually registered by the time wow. um, things went in, things went into effect with Prop 64. And and now we're doing the uphill battle and they're all in the black market again um, for, the, for the reasons you just stated, Bill. So something certainly got to change there. And I know, 
uh, and you know we come back to regardless of where you sit on the on the on the cannabis spectrum user non-user for against yeah. left right we, we try to take all that out of it and just look mm-hmm. what does everybody agree on and one thing i found as you know and you guys are, are doing a lot of this too now is when we tell a growers group that no one wants to see the environment destroyed, mm-hmm. you know, except maybe, maybe DTO, I will say DTOs are pretty savage on humanity and, and, and environment. They don't seem to give a rat's ass, but the black market growers in California that I know that are the X two fifteeners and they're going underground for whatever reason, um, they like their environment or they seem to, and if they can get on the good side of not destroying waterways and et cetera, et cetera, we seem to get a little bit of support that way. And, and when we focus on the environmental component and what Wayne and I are constantly dealing with on this thin green line format is what is happening to our country from an environmental standpoint, from a water standpoint, from a public safety standpoint. And, and that's, what's most alarming. So you're, what you guys are doing on that end too is, is, is helping with that message. And we appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I mean, the, the, I agree with you. Everyone agrees on, on uh, uniting against uh, just crushing our environment. I mean, that, and that's, that's a real issue. And the other side of it is, don't forget, like someone's consuming that product that's made with those right. chemicals, you know? Yes. And, and yes. man, I, I don't know that there could be a worse way. I don't know that there could be a worse way to ingest uh, a pesticide than smoking smoking it you know so yeah. so that's that's the other part of it i mean you know we're, we're damaging and, and i'm not talking about again taking taking the the how you feel about legalization or whatever out of it um taking the thc out of it so to speak um i don't yeah. want to see people i don't want to see people smoking pesticides you know that that's right. for certain the, the thc part is, is another discussion but the pesticides i think everybody should agree we don't want people smoking pesticides and we don't want people killing our environment with pesticides. And we, we got to find a way to get together on those two things. Uh, otherwise, the damage kind of gets exponentially and we're going to be paying for it down the road. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, And you have those types of people that, I mean, we're green. You know, and that's why a lot of them smoke that. It's all natural. It's this and that. And, you know, to bring that pesticides in, I think they would be offended. But then when you put the price on it, it's 70% more. I can absolutely see why they go back to what they used to do because it's so much more expensive rather than, but they still, you know, they still feel like a connection to something green. But if they know they're smoking pesticides, I mean, and again, what you're doing, Bill, here is educating. And I I think every federal agency should be doing more and more of this is telling the people what's going on and being connected. You know, one thing I think we've, we've probably failed is use of force, educating, you know, people and use of force so they understand. I've had good friends ask me questions about use of force and did they really need to shoot the guy that shot the taser at him? And I'm like, yeah. we failed. We failed that the general public yeah. doesn't understand our use of force and the way we have to address so we can go home safe, so we're not threatened. And same thing with the drugs. By telling people that these pesticides are out here and, you know, you should be going here where I'm assuming it's not getting into the legal market, these illegal pesticides, mm-hmm. or is it? Mm-hmm. That's one question I had. Is that actually getting into the legal so- side? So, so there, so there is some of that. There, there is some of that way, you know, we, we'll, we're calling that gray market. <laughs> you wow. Know? And, and we'll, and, well, and here's, here's, here's That's the thing, a, a lot of that. So a lot of the, a lot of, there's a lot of knockoff vaping cartridges now where there might be a legal permitted company that's making uh, THC vaping cartridges. And then someone will knock off an artificial one and 
push it into the uh, push it into the legitimate marijuana marketplaces. Super dangerous, man. Because, mm. like, like I said, the, the 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 THC cartridges seem to me to be the number one area where all the ones that are tested that are black market have pesticides in them. Mm. And you know that, that that's uh, especially when we are probably younger people are probably using. Those so products traditionally, kids, yeah. yeah, dangerous All to kids, over. man. I, I, exactly, exactly. Jeez, the gray market. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the gray market. Yeah, uh, but just... but you know that, that's a situation where where you know the companies are trying to almost do the right thing. They're like, listen, we're getting killed on these taxes. At least if I could buy from a black market guy, I'm going to sell it in my permitted licensed store. But at least if I could buy from a black market guy, I can cut my costs a little bit. And, yep. you know, try to try to keep my head above water. Um, yeah. At the, at the retail level, it's kind of weird. The, the other thing I don't like about the, the, the state law at the retail level or, or even uh, it, it might even uh, work with grows, too, is the state has a fund. I mean, maybe, maybe it's around twenty five million dollars. And that's for they can grant that out to municipalities for compliance. But what mm -hmm. they've done is if your city does not permit uh, legal cannabis, your city is not eligible to get any of that money. And to me, that doesn't really make sense. So, so what happens is, and I like to take the city of Compton in, in Southern California here as an example, because they put marijuana on the ballot and the people of the city voted against it. They said, we don't want cannabis retail sales or cultivation in our city. Okay. Uh, so the city didn't permit it. But there's a whole bunch of illegal dispensaries operating in the city. There's probably a whole bunch of grows in the city. And the city can't get any money from the state, from this fund, to do compliance and get rid of those uh, businesses because they didn't allow marijuana in the city. So, so, so that money is only good if you permit marijuana, you can get that money and go after the unpermitted businesses in your city. But if you don't permit marijuana, you're out of luck. And I think that's a very naive view of the marketplace because that's right. affecting, you know, just because the small city of Compton, that's affecting the whole region with marijuana sales and cultivation uh, by, by, not, by them not being able to address the black market there. That's affecting the, the licensed permitted market all across the region. I, I think the state should probably look at changing that. That might have a positive impact on uh on the policy and, and you know help get some of the black market retail stuff under control which would reduce the demand for black market grows which then hopefully helps our environment and, and people stop smoking pesticides yeah wow yeah. huge issue yep. yeah. people people don't know that's 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 the, the, the no. crazy part they don't know and you know i just i, I think california but i think across <clears throat> the whole united states and if that stuff's coming east you know, because they probably have plenty of it there. They ship it to us. And oh, that's yeah. the last pit thing I've <laughs> never heard at East Coast talk about, you know, pesticides and marijuana. So I, I think it's it's really right. good to get that out there that you're if you're buying black market anywhere, the chances of having, you know, illegal pesticides pesticides that could harm you is is huge. It's huge. Yeah. So. It, you know, and to that point, I think uh I don't know if Wayne or John mentioned earlier, like, Hey, you go, the, the, the growers go back to what they were doing. I mean, that's where like carbofuran, obviously not legal here in the United States to use, right. But it's coming from Mexico and the growers have used it in Mexico. And those growers that used to grow for the cartels down there that are coming up here now, they're, they're bringing the chemicals with them. They're, they're bringing the pesticides, yep. the stuff that they've 
become familiar with, that they've grown with, that's what they're bringing with them to do to do the grows up here. And, and we're stuck with it. You know, we're stuck with kind of uh, kind of bearing the impact of that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, when we, when we talk about the pesticides, Wayne, you were, you were talking about, we don't really think of it on the East coast and, and that's the problem with thinking of this as a California West coast issue, right? Bill, mm, we think, right. Hey, yeah, we're, we're the, we're the hub of it. I mean, obviously a Mediterranean problem, weed state of California. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's a West coast thing. Mm-hmm. You guys are dealing with it. It's horrible out there in California, but when we're supplying, you know, mm. a, a, the big bulk of the black market for every state from border to border. Yeah. And, and I think about the kids with these vape pins, Bill, that you, you mentioned. And, you know, I was reading a study and, and talking to other, you know, scientists on this, that the temperature that these vapes burn with this inhaled vapor is is changing the care, the chemical characteristics of these pesticides and poisons and actually enhancing them like we've never seen before because vaping's so new with, and, and our kids are doing that, you know, and you think, Okay, what's 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 what are we going to look at five five years down the road? Two, three, four, five years um, as far as respiratory issues. Um, I have you know medical professionals in the family that are either nurses or doctors in some of you know Stanford and, and El Camino Hospital, some of the magnet hospitals up here in the Silicon Valley, and they're getting you know 15, 16 year old kids from affluent families getting good grades that are vaping cannabis and, and tobacco, but the cannabis side especially. And they're ending up with internal bleeding and they're in the hospital for several days and, and they're trying to backtrack where did this happen? And we're seeing where it's happening from. So I think from the standpoint of the public knowing this, that aren't that it's not a widespread talked about issue right now is huge. And I'm glad you guys are doing it. I'm glad you're talking yeah. about it on our show. We're grateful for that. And I know we're going to keep pushing it, um, but it's, it, it's not getting any better because the demand is there. So whatever we can do to, to lessen it yeah. is, is certainly favorable. And, and, you know, John, a lot of times um, because, you know, because we carry a badge, people are reluctant to uh, take advice from us. Right. They're, they think, right. Oh no, the DEA, the DEA is just trying to scare us because yep. uh, they, they don't want, you know, they, they don't, they don't <laughs> want marijuana out there, out there anyway. So what, what I try to do is like we talked about with the uh, IERC or wh- whatever it was, I try to mm-hmm. provide people references like that and say, no, go, go check for yourself, see what's out there. So there's a, there's a video uh, on YouTube. If people look at CanaSafe, it was a news story that was done by a major network where they tested vape cartridges. And right. man, you hit, when you talked about the heat, and this is something, you know, I've never, I, I never knew this. I didn't know that you could crank up the heat on a vaping uh, Pam, right, right, I didn't either. and they're yeah. finding that hey, maybe this product is safe if it's vaped at normal heat. But as soon as you crank up the heat, it becomes completely unsafe to to ingest. And I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to think of uh, some of the chemicals that, that were in there, like hydrogen cyanide, formaldehyde that they had in the vaping mm-hmm. pens. And again, when people hear a DEA agent say that, they're like, oh, they're just trying to scare us. Right. You know? They're trying right. to scare us because they don't want marijuana out there. Do some independent research. Um, check some of these independent testing uh, places that are not affiliated with DEA or with law enforcement and let them tell you what's in the product that you're taking because you don't know right now. And you don't know. There's so many counterfeit products counterfeit vaping products on the market. And a lot of them are made to look identical to legal ones, the packaging and everything else. You just yep. don't know what you're taking and you don't know the dangers of, uh, of the, the chemicals that are, that are in them. <clears throat> yeah. 
nasty. It would almost be great if that uh, the legal growers could have some kind of an association that some of their taxes actually went towards public information regarding that stuff because they don't want to pay any more taxes. They're not going to believe the state if it puts out. So, again, you said an independent thing, but take a little yep. bit of their taxes, 1%, and put it towards a, you know, just an informational type thing. So that would attack um, those illegal sources on another front. But I, I still, when you're paying 70% of your you know, profit on taxes, it's just, uh, it's, it's hard to ask uh, a business to take on something else to try to reduce it. It's just, uh, yeah, it's astronomical. But, you know, and then back to a, back to a point I made earlier, e- even for the people that really believe in legal marijuana, I hope they would get behind this because mm. for, for many years, people have been very critical of DEA because there's been one licensed uh, place in the United States that DEA has licensed to grow marijuana for research. It's the University of uh, Mississippi, I think, Old Miss. That's been the spot. And people are like, well, we need more access. We need more places. We, we need more uh, licenses out there so people can grow, so we can do more research and testing. And DEA is doing that now. I think we published something for comment uh, four or five months ago. We're going to go for somewhere between, add somewhere between three and eight, maybe more uh, producers to produce marijuana for testing. But to my point, when testing, you know, if groups are testing marijuana now and it's not from it's not, how do you know what you're testing? Right. If, <laughs> right. You're, if you know, so so if you're a legalizer and you're trying to prove that marijuana has these uh, medicinal purposes or whatever, I mean, like there could be pesticides and everything else in the stuff that you're testing, which is throwing off everything. So, so I mean, everyone should no matter which side of the issue you're on for the environmental issues, for the testing issues, to get a clear picture of what the benefits and and uh, detriments of this substance are, we need to clean it up. We just need to clean right. it up. Mm-hmm. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, definitely, definitely on that education component and and consistency and, and spread it out throughout throughout the country. Bill, if you um, moving forward, yeah, looking at looking at this thing from a federal standpoint. What do you want to tell the public? What can you tell our viewers and listeners right now from the standpoint of anything narcotic trend wise, um, knowing what you're ingesting, um, yeah. anything you guys can say from an education standpoint, please let us know. Yeah. So, so the number one threat and, and hey, we, we as much as we're talking about the dangers of this stuff, um, unfortunately, we're able of the of the outdoor grows. We're, we're unfortunately able to only spend a very small percentage of our work hours on this stuff because of the, what you call the white drug problems earlier. So, so let me tell you what the number one threat uh, we, we, we see right now is on the drug front in Southern California. And if it's not in your city across the U.S. now, it will be very soon. It's counterfeit prescription drugs, right? So these are mm. generally uh, fentanyl drugs. Fentanyl is the active ingredient. Like a lot of times I've heard them described as oxycodone pills laced with fentanyl. I mean, that's not the case. What they are is they're counterfeit pills made in Mexico by the drug cartels. They're made to look identical to prescription drugs sold here in the U.S. And they're smuggled across the border, just like marijuana was and is, or cocaine was and is. And they're sold up here. Now, the issue is like when the three of us grew up, Uh, and someone was an opiate user, there was a bit of a stigma attached to it. Um, You know, people shied away from heroin because like that was the guy who was an intravenous drug user. Someone who's injecting their arms is kind of like, man, 
that's something that very few people would would uh, even try, at, le at least back when I was younger. So take away that stigma now, put something that's 50 times more powerful than heroin, put it in a pill that looks like that looks like uh, a pharmaceutical pill that you would get at a pharmacy or, or a doctor might prescribe after you've had some kind of surgery or something. People are unfortunately a lot more comfortable taking these pills. And that's why we're seeing fentanyl overdoses. Most of the times fentanyl overdoses are coming from taking these counterfeit pills. And what the drug cartels did is the, the opiate crisis in this country started, shame on us, it started here in the U.S. by, by uh, our, our corporate-made drugs, and there were a, a small portion of unscrupulous, unscrupulous and unethical doctors and pharmacists out there who mm -hmm. prescribed drugs without medical need because they were greedy. And they got people addicted. And then as DEA and a lot of other agencies, HHS, Health and Human Services, educated the doctors and the pharmacists on the dangers of these drugs and addiction and what it can lead to, we've cut the prescriptions for these drugs way down. And we've cut the quota. Like we, we set a quota of how much of how, what the quantity of opiates that can be produced in the U.S. We cut that way down. So what did that do? The Mexican drug cartels said, hmm, there's an opportunity for us to make money here. The demand is there in the United States. They've just cut the supply down. Let's make a lookalike drug with fentanyl. We can get the chemicals to make fentanyl from the same Chinese companies that have been selling us mm -hmm. the chemicals to make methamphetamine for years. And we'll just start pumping that stuff into the U.S. And, and that's what we've yeah. seen. So unfortunately, um, this is really affecting kids. Like there was a 14 year old in, uh, in LA County who died within the past month from an overdose, a 14 year old in San Diego County who died in the past, wow. in the past couple months. And the, the issue is you don't know uh, the same as with some of the, the black market marijuana stuff. You don't really know what you're taking. It's made in some filthy clandestine lab in Mexico. The dosing is super inconsistent and if you think it's oxycodone, you might think you can tolerate, say, two pills and you take two pills of this and the amount of fentanyl that's in it immediately kills you. So wow. that is probably uh, the number one danger that we're seeing out there now is fentanyl and um, and and counterfeit prescription drugs using fentanyl uh, just just kind of kind of flooding in here now. And it goes to the cartels are going to do what they have to do to make money. And even to me, this is actually an example of. A lot of times people just call for legalization, like, hey, a lot of our problems would go away if we just legalized it. And from what I've seen in my experience, all I can say is that there's two issues that you need to address with any legalization plan, uh, addiction and greed, right? right, if, you can't, right. If, you, if you can't explain to me how you're going to deal with addiction and greed, then the plan is not going to work. And the ironic thing is with these counterfeit prescription drugs, those drugs are, the real drugs are legal in this country. They're legal drugs that doctors can prescribe and whatever, but because of addiction and because of greed on the part of the Mexican drug cartels, they're, they're able to ship those drugs in here and capitalize on that market. They're going to make their money. If they can't make it in marijuana, then they're going to make it in fentanyl and in methamphetamine. And, and those synthetic drugs now are, uh, are the most dangerous things causing overdoses anyway, causing overdoses and death here in, uh, here in this part of the country and really throughout the country. I know Wayne, the Northeast uh, was hit real hard with, uh, with opiate stuff and fentanyl. Mm -hmm. oh, still is.
So yeah, and from an enforcement point, boy, that's going to be difficult for your everyday police officer because all you do is pop that in a prescription bottle, and here we look at it, and it's got your name on it. You open What's it up, it looks like the identical yeah. pill, and uh, we say, "Have a nice day." I, I just, uh, it's oh. so so tough. So um, you got to get yeah. it, I guess, crossing I mean, the border. That's exactly what I was going to say, Wayne, is, you know, luckily, I I shouldn't even say luckily, but at the levels that we're hopefully dealing with here in L.A., being a kind of a transshipment hub and dealing with wholesalers, uh, these folks are moving thousands of pills at a time. So, you know, it'll just be big bags of big bags of pills and we can hit it with a with a with like a laser tester and, you know, find out right away it's fentanyl, it's not oxycodone and. And uh, it's good to go, but that that creates a tremendous problem. And then, and then the other issue for the patrol people, and even even uh, you know your brothers out out there, is the dangers that these pills can cause just by inhalation. Right. You know, we, we we've had a lot of we've had a lot of uh, a lot of situations around the country where the fentanyl somehow became airborne, whether it was because of a scuffle or because of a shooting or just people trying to hide it and throwing it and it becomes airborne and officers breathe it and they, they fall out and they have to be hit with uh, Narcan or, or, uh, or something in the lock zone to save their lives. So that, that that's also uh, a significant danger with fentanyl too. Bill, it sounds like this, uh, this prescription pill black market um, from the cartels, this is uh, I mean, it's fresh and new obviously, but it seems like it's the easiest, most lucrative, hardest to detect, most sedate, dangerous to kids like unprecedented that we've seen this seems like the trend moving forward for the whole country and, and quite a threat that's well said i mean i agree with you 100 percent on that um and and like i said just to reiterate part of it is because the stigma of kind of hardcore drug use right hardcore drug use like injecting heroin used to have a bit of a stigma attached to it and now we have something that's 50 times more uh, powerful just to say it again and it's in a nice, pretty little blue pill and, and looks like something that um, hmm. you get from the doctor or the pharmacy. And that's that's what gets the kids. That's what gets the kids. Yeah. But we'll um, we'll de- definitely push this. We obviously do a lot of tainted weed education on the environmental crime front. We, we mention other traditional, you know, white dope issues. But this is something we're, we've been aware of, but it hasn't really integrated into any of my teaching or, you know, outreach that I would do to specific groups and sometimes kids. I know before COVID, um, I was going to high school assemblies, you know, throughout California and up here in the, in the Northwest and, and educating on, you know, Hey, just be aware if you're going to, you know, on, on the marijuana continuum, I said, I'm not coming in as a retired cop. I'm not big brother. I'm not saying don't use drugs. You're teenagers. You're going to do what you're going to do, but just, you know, knowledge is power. So mm-hmm. look at these slides, look at this environmental devastation, look at what's on this weed blah, 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 blah. And I've had kids just run, run out of there petrified. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to, I'm never going to touch another joint or vape another pen. You know, uh, I don't, I don't want to ingest cartel dope, but man, this is, this is even more day. I mean, this is so much bigger and so much easier to mask. Um, it needs to be integrated in all the education we're doing. And, and I'm really yeah. glad it's first time, first time we've ever talked about it, brother. So yeah. Um, yeah. And you're, you're in the war, the center war zone of it. And thanks for bringing this up. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, you bring up schools and, and, and we do a lot of programs with schools, but the unfortunate thing that I've experienced and and hopefully uh, your listeners can can kind of push this is we've gone to schools to talk about educating students on some of these issues that we're talking about. And we get pushback. And what we hear is, 
well, we don't want the, you know, we don't want the kids to go home and tell their parents they heard about this. The parents will then think there's a drug problem in the school. Mm-hmm. Right. And, right. And, and, you know, as if there's not <laughs> drugs in the school, you know, and I mean, that's right. just really frustrating to hear that because you, you, your message was on point with, with what ours is. I mean, um, you know, no, no disrespect to Nancy Reagan, but uh, just say no isn't really an effective message, you know, in 2020, um, as it was back when, when, when we were kids. I mean, what we try to say is we try to do just what you spoke about, provide knowledge so that people can make informed decisions about what they're going to do. And, and the message that we kind of try to get kids to buy into is find something in life that you're passionate about, no matter what it is, whether it's the outdoors, right? Whether it's hunting and fishing or whether it's a sport or an instrument or ballet or reading, don't let drugs distract you from that passion and don't ever let drugs become your passion. And we, we've, we have speakers. Uh, one of them is named Brandon Novak, who is a professional skateboarder. And he tells that exact story. I mean, he was touring the world as a professional skateboarder, got wrapped up in drugs. It kind of started to detract from his career and mm-hmm. his success. And skateboarding wasn't that important to him anymore. And then all of a sudden, he didn't give a crap about skateboarding, didn't even want to do it. It was just all about his feeding his addiction every day. And, you know, that's what we're trying to kind of educate kids to is if if you have something in life that you're passionate about, um, you're going to be a lot better off than, you know, and a a lot less at risk for, for drug addiction. Mm-hmm. And start young yeah, too. I mean, message. I focused start on being young. a game warden at six years old, and that's what I focused on. I know others that were focused on being a fighter pilot, but began very young and just took their life and made it so they could become what they wanted to be. And there are rules to yep. do that, and the rules are: you got to keep your nose clean. Yeah, you know, you can't violate this. You can't do that. You can't do that. So, but that's to achieve that ultimate goal that you want. And you're right. Make it your passion. I love that. I love that phrase, yep. Bill. That's that's an awesome phrase. Yep. Make make something else yep. your addiction. So yeah, that's it. Make something else your addiction, and, and, and don't get distracted. Make it something. Hopefully, make it something healthy. That's gonna that's actually mm. gonna better your yeah. life. Because the bottom line is, you know, the three of us know nothing good. You know, nothing good's gonna come from any kind of. Uh, addictive drug use or, or significant drug use. It's just not. Yeah. No. 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 I, I, a- absolutely. Well said. I appreciate well, man, what you're Bill, doing. I, mm. you yeah. Know great, great, great. Go ahead, Wayne. Sorry. I, I just think other federal agencies can take uh, uh, this, this piece out of the DEA book by promoting what they're doing and what the, you know, I think sometimes federal agencies try to be undercover and stay undercover. I think the telling the public what's going on and what you're doing is so important. After the fact, you caught the bad guy there in jail. Let, let's tell the people what we're doing and what what is important. And that's that's with a lot of federal agencies I've worked with. You know, we like to tell the stories, John and I. And I just I just hope that other federal agencies follow the DEA because keeping the public in the dark. I think we're seeing what's happening by keeping the public in the dark. They're starting to question what we do and stuff. But by bringing out what we're doing and how we're doing it, it may be after the fact, but I think there comes a lot of understanding with that. And I think we start needs to start to bridge that with uh, our general public. I agree 100%. And, and you know, to that end, uh, people give us a follow on Twitter here in Los Angeles. Mm. DEA, at DEA Los Angeles. We're talking about uh, current trends all the time and some of the enforcement work that we do. We're, we're talking about uh, fugitives that we're looking for. So, so give us a follow and stay up to date on what's happening in Nevada, the LA region and Hawaii. 
Nice. Bill, we sure will. We'll actually put that in our social media when we, uh, mm-hmm. when we launch this podcast. And to reiterate, to reiterate what Wayne said, um, it has been so hard to get anybody from the federal side to talk publicly on a forum like this. Mm-hmm. And um, man, thanks for doing this. This is, this is really great to hear from you, get to know your story a little bit better. And uh, coming from the old stomping grounds, it's, <laughs> it's good to see you in LA, yeah. man, the, the, hub, the hub of the jungle where so much is going on. And, and thanks to you guys for doing what you do, because as I said, we see the uh, the number of grows on public lands going down drastically. And, and a lot of that is a tribute to you guys, attributed to you guys getting the word out. And just because you're uh, not out there every day doesn't mean you can't still be in the fight. And that's what you're doing. And it's appreciated. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, we look forward to talking with you again down the road. All right. Take care, guys. Be thanks, safe. Bill.